Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast. I know so many of you listening to this show love your local bar, your local restaurant, maybe your local hotel, and have so many fond memories of time in hospitality businesses. This is the podcast where we get to chat to the human beings behind the scenes of that industry. Maybe the chefs or the bakers or the coffee roasters or the gin distillers or the craft brewers or the entrepreneurs, but all doing an amazing job of making sure that hospitality stays interesting and the big dull formulaic brands do not take over our high street please enjoy the show In this week's conversation, I am chatting to Michael Stote, who is a fifth-generation miller in Dorset, whose family have been producing stone ground flour ever since 1832, the era when sailing catches would carry the flour across the Severn to Swansea and return with coal for the mills. We actually got to enjoy this conversation on the edge of the river where there has been a mill for over a thousand years. Now, as a teenager, Michael thought he'd be an engineer, but he had so much fun getting his hands dirty in the holidays he couldn't help but join the family business and in this conversation you're going to learn about the wonder of the wheat germ the very embryo of life which gives bread its gorgeous flavor and what really happens to it in modern mechanized milling and you'll get to see how michael has adapted to this ever-changing bread scene from the lows of the 80s and the 90s when his whole food shop market completely disappeared to the much brighter times now with our growing interest in continental breads artisanal baking and sourdough i very much hope you enjoy this week's conversation Michael, thank you so much for sparing the time and uh, and yeah, welcoming me to your mill. Can you just tell me where where in the world am I? I've just driven through miles of countryside. Where are we? Can you just describe our environment? Right, we're in the village of Cannes, um, which is at the bottom of the hill outside the Saxon hilltop town of Shaftesbury, um, which is famous for its uh, gold hill, of course, with True. the old um, Yorkshireman pushing his bicycle up the hill with his loaves of bread. Yeah. So it's a... Uh, quite apt that what we're doing here today is grinding flour to yeah, make yeah. bread. So there's always been yeah. a bread and, and baking bread. And you're literally tucked into sort of, yeah, we're at the bottom of the valley here. I seem to see I came down a hill, turned a sharp right, and all of a sudden I was here. But. That's right. No, we're, we're at the bottom of the hill and hence the um, reason for the mill being here along the, um, uh, the source of the Sturkel, um, which is uh, feeds the Stour further on. So there used to be five mills within a, a mile on this stretch of the on the river. Wow. So it follows the way. It comes out of the um, chalk about half a mile up the river, and then it comes. The springs come out, and they follow the the course down. So we're the only mill remaining now, um, but uh, there's one mill above us that's still got all the machinery there, but all the others are house conversions. Really? So how long has there been a mill on this location? Um, Difficult to say exactly, but certainly a thousand years. There's one in the, recorded in the Doomsday Book. Um, uh, yes, a mill at Cannes. Um, so whether it's exactly where the mill is today or whether it's uh, sort of a few hundred feet away. That's a thousand years of milling history. And that's specifically then because of its location on the water and the flood. Absolutely. makes it a good... Yes, no, it was a very consistent supply of water, even... Um, in 1976, when we had the dry weather then, and, and for that matter, last summer, really? um, it didn't make any difference to the uh, capacity we could mill. Uh, we, we build up the head of water in a mill pond. That builds up, it's a bit like recharging your battery at night, really. The, um, we use the water during the day, shut the sluices, and it builds up overnight. So uh, as long as the mill pond's full by the morning, you know. Right. I'm getting a bit geeky now, but where does that water? How does it, how is it not affected by rainfall and dry summers? So where's that water coming from? It's a, it's a spring. Uh, it comes out of the springs, right. and the springs come out of the chalk, and okay. um, possibly because the chalk is a very deep springs, um, and it wasn't affected by the um, by the dry weather. So it's, right. uh, no, they tend to be really consistent. Yeah, amazing. So uh, fifth generation, I think I read. Uh, you just explained <laughs> the history. Of how long have you been here, and, and how long has it been okay, in the family? Uh, my father moved here in 1947. Um, his father milled before that in Bristol. Um, that was a fairly big modern mill of the time. And then before that, we're in Watchet in Somerset. So that's where it all started, uh, milling in 
watch it. It was producing flair. That was going through the Industrial Revolution. Then it was, it was that 1832 that started. Uh, so that was a stone mill initially. <clears throat> and then it went over to the roller milling system. There was uh, the coal milling industry was being developed in Swansea. So there was a huge demand for flour over in Swansea. So they'd mill it and watch it. And they had two sailing catches that would take the flour over to Swansea to meet the demand. And then they'd come back with coal, um, which latterly drove the steam turbine that ran the mill. So it was a, um, a full cycle there. And then they outgrew that premises. So that's when the new mill was built in Bristol. Um, and then Spillers took over the business in the 1930s. Um, but my father carried on work. He, he, he started working for the family business. And then the war broke out. So he was away for five years during the, during the war. He was in the Navy. Um, he came back and worked two years for Spillers and then decided he wanted to be out on his own. So he purchased this uh, can mills. Um, so this was an animal feed mill when he first arrived. So it wasn't producing flour at all. So it was producing um, a meal, mainly for dairy farmers and pig farmers in the area. And then he, um, so that was in 1947. So it wasn't until the late 60s, early 70s that we started going back to our roots of producing um, flour. Okay. And you were saying earlier that so the original building that was here actually burnt down in the 1950s. That's right. When he came here, the uh, yes, the, the building uh, was... Local, Bill had a local stone um, and wooden framed. And uh, yeah, sadly in 1954, it burnt to the ground. Probably a diesel engine that um, um, a manifold overheated and um, Hessian sacks and uh, yes, yeah, so a whole lot went up. Yeah. So it's so been rebuilt out of uh, industrial uh, materials of the day, which was sort of concrete then. It was a what they call a Rima building. So it was a prefab building that was put up within a year he was uh, up and running again wow. which was pretty good for those days um so it's, it's a very practical building now it's big heavy concrete beams and three meter ceilings so it's um fairly bomb proof we can um do what we want in it really yeah. whereas fit, fit for purpose fit for so purpose, did you yeah. did you live here as a child then you, i grew up here oh, yes okay yes uh, and was it sort of insistent you you must be a miller or was there a, were you going to go off and do something else um it's um uh, one doesn't know what was going on behind the scenes. Yeah. Uh, uh, You've been brainwashed. Yeah. Uh, my brother, he'd gone into uh, ornithology and um, nature and stud studying um, environmental studies, really. Yes, whether the more pressure was put on me, I don't know, but uh, I tended to be more interested in the engineering side of things. So I, 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 was, I got bored at school and so left a bit early and went on and did an engineering course in Salisbury thinking I was going to go and carry on with that at in Oxford um, with some friends who had gone up. But I uh, I enjoyed the um, the practical side of things back here at the mill. During the holidays, I'd come and help and uh, like tinkering around with the machinery and getting hands dirty and produ producing a product at the end of the day too. It was um, uh, I found it very satisfying. So yes, I gradually moulded into the <laughs> milling scene here and uh, yeah. never looked back really and yeah. it's a hugely satisfying uh, yeah so that, so you sort of evolved it wasn't a eureka moment you said yeah that's it i'm going to dedicate my life to this it just sort of happened it and, did evolve and here I, you are yes yeah, so I, I believe my, my, my grandfather he was told that he had to be a miller and he said no i want to be a farmer no you're going to be a miller and it wasn't until he retired that he became a farmer that's <laughs> <laughs> patience a long time yeah. <laughs> but um no, I've, I've, I've what, are you, what are you going to do when you grow up? I've got, yeah. I don't know. I will grow up. <laughs> <laughs> You're fairly committed now, I think. I'd like to do more bread making, actually. One, one thing yeah. I miss, because um, it's so involved in the mill, that I'd, I wish I had more time for actually making making bread. So it'd be nice to yeah. uh, spend a bit more time doing that. And then you've got kids as well, have you? Or? I've got uh, a son and a daughter and a stepson. Yeah, so okay. my son now, he's joined me in the business. Has he? Okay. Um, so... Uh, Yes, he's been, um, Oliver, he's been here for uh, nearly three years now. Right. Uh, daughter, she's reading product design at Loughborough, so okay. a bit of engineering still yeah, in perfect. there. Yeah, perfect. Okay, so there could be another evolution <laughs> of, the, uh, of the mill, so that's good, yeah. I think it's different with, with these multi-generational businesses, and I, I just, um, I did another podcast with a girl called Kerry, who was a fifth-generation um, dairy farmer, and, and 
didn't think she was going to go into into farming sort of went into teaching uh, and now has actually taken over the farm and that although she loves it i think it's a huge amount of responsibility when something's been multi-generational isn't it and i'm sure you're the same you don't want your kids to do it out of obligation no not at all but it must also be really rewarding if they genuinely love it and it creates an opportunity yes you you can't deny that that's deep down what you want um it's only human nature but on the other hand you want the most important things to be happy and for them to do what they want to do so when ollie was younger i said oh you know fancy you know what do you think and he said no no i suppose he used to watch me work so hard yeah, long hours and think well and then uh, i think as he so grew up he realized that you know you've got to get your teeth stuck into something and um you see that it was yeah they're just the hands-on yeah, he, it's got to be well working in a bank isn't it I mean, yeah so it's, yeah not always very hands-on he likes um doing things practically and things so um yeah no he, he, you can see he's enjoying it more and more Excellent. So you're, um, you know, you've got a reputation for uh, amazing produce, and uh, thanks for the tour. You've just shown me round, so I now I've, I'm learning so much. But a lot of that comes from the way that you mill, and then it's the traditional kind of stone ground. So can you just explain a little bit about the mill here and what's special about it compared to how so much flour is made nowadays? Yeah, we 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 try and keep the process as simple as possible. Really, it's it is the traditional stone ground flour. Um, we don't tamper with that in in any way. We use um, most of the stones we have a natural, uh, the French Burr millstone, which is a primitive limestone. Um, we've got a cup two um, composite stones, which are Danish stones. Uh, but we um, the actual principle of milling um, we keep as simple as we possibly can. Um, we don't add anything to the grain. Uh, we mill it and. Um, and, and make the white flour by sieving it, mechanical sieving. So, um, yes, we like to think that uh, as, much, as natural as possible, as l- tampered with as little as possible, and it is a natural uh, natural product. Um, mo- modern roller milling, uh, modern milling, um, it's all done on steel rollers, and it's, um, it's very scientifically done to produce as much flour as possible, white flour as possible from the grain. So there's a, a lot of uh, high-tech um, separation, not just uh, with air classification, se- separating the starch from the fibre. So it's called a gradual reduction process. So it'll go through several se- sets of rolls, um, each time breaking the grain up into different fractions. So at the end of the line, you've got all these different products that they've got from the grain and then depending on what product they're marketing they feed them back together again so for a whole meal flour they'll put most of it ends up going back together again for the whitest of white flour they'll just choose the bits of endosperm that come from the very center of the grain so there's nothing from the outside at all in it okay. and then there'll be fractions in between depending on like a standard bread flour um, we'll have yeah, as certain amounts of the white flour that are closest to the um to the outside layer so it's it's, it's very scientific and right. very very efficient um but it uh it, it doesn't have the same flavor as a stone ground flour i mean it, it doesn't have the wheat germ in it this gets taken out and the wheat germ although it constitutes only one and a half percent of the grain it's it's the embryo of life it's the um it's where all the natural oils are in the grain that produces the uh, the, ger- the germination um and this is where a lot of flavor and goodness is but because it's high in oil and oil goes rancid um in the interests of long shelf life it's uh, it's often removed from the flour with the stone ground flour you just can't take it out it's it's ground in the flour and the uh, the natural warmth in the process of milling uh, makes the oil more runny and when as it gets ground between the stones it gets rubbed in so even the stone ground white flour will have uh, the wheat goodness of the wheat germ oils in there and, and that's why you get that pale um, yellow colour to the flour because it's, it's got the, all this goodness still left in there. Okay so that's where the nutrition is in essence that's the seed that's where like you said that's where life comes from so take that out and you what have you got what's the bit the rest of us are eating? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and the, the centre of the grain is, is, is starch I mean so yeah. yes it's um, it's white and fluffy and not a lot of flavour right. um, but as you get closer to the outside layer of the grain um, you 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 come across more more of the nutrients, more of the flavours, um, more of the goodness. 
Um, so obviously th there's a balance here of uh, e economics and um, uh, and co um, character to the flair. Yeah. Um, it seems crazy that we take out so much and end up with with a, a product that's that, yeah doesn't 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 taste as nice and has less nutritional kind of you know goodness in it and uh, yeah it, it seems odd that we do that doesn't it but uh, when, when did that start when did we get this obsession with um, with modern flour without the nutrition well probably longer ago than a lot of people think actually yeah. it was a, a bit of a status um, to be able to eat white bread um, the white of the bread. Uh, was uh, the, the better you were if you could eat white bread. <laughs> so uh, and this this so the relevant this created a huge demand for white flour, um, which the stone mills dotted around the country couldn't keep up with. Um, so this new technology, as it was, came in in this eighteen fifties from um, Hungary, um, and it was um, because they could produce so much more white flour per hour and more efficiently. And so a lot of, um, some stone mills just sort of just stopped trading. Um, others embraced the technology and installed um, roller milling equipment into the into the stone mills, which was quite a challenge. Um, and and if, if you look in the history books in the late 1800s, so 1880 to 1900, uh, the a huge amount of mill fires and uh, it's because all the all this um, high output technology was being crammed into old rickety buildings, and the technology was quite uh, infinite. I suppose yeah, so the um, bearings and things would be overheating, and there'd be dust around that would ignite. So um, there's a, a lot of mills that um, burnt down during that period. Okay, uh, but the te technology has moved on, and um, modern roller milling has. Um, so proved to be this hugely efficient business, uh, industry at producing uh, white flour efficiently. Right, predominantly from a yield perspective, so basically they can get more flour out of the grain. More flour out of the grain is all about extraction rates. Right. Yes. As, as has a lot of farming become much more industrialised, the pressure on dairy farms and you know milk at a certain price and all that kind of stuff. So That's it's right. Just, it's... just across across the industry. So so we're lucky that people, you know, like you, are there still a lot of mills doing it the traditional way across the country or has this become quite niche? Or? Um, I think th there are more and more. There's, um, we remember the traditional cornmillers guild, so it's a, a guild that um, started over 25 years ago now I think and it's um, there's over, um, must be heading on towards 30 members now, small mills dotted around the country. Um, some are just maybe just working museums um, but have good volunteer support uh, and and take the, the craft seriously you know is um quite passionate about it so, so there's dotted around the country there are quite a few mills um sort of producing but it's it's very low very low volumes right so um, so the percentage of, of flour produced in this way is what less than one fr or? fraction of one Really, a fraction of a percent. Yeah. Wow. So it's, uh, okay. I, I think the the whole milling industry is about five million tons a year in this country. So it's, uh, quite quite a lot of grain being milled. Amazing. But the, <clears throat> I mean, uh, the actual small mills will be yes, a fraction of a percent. Right. So whereas organic, I know, I think it's grown now, but it was you know it was three percent at one stage. So you're you're even less than that. So where where there seems to be this. Uh, this growth um, in in sort of people's desire for nutrition and some of the artisan breads and stuff like that. How, how do we fulfil that now then? Because can those modern mills produce the flour that you do, or are we going to need to see a growth if we want if we want to kind of go back on on this trajectory of actual new, nutritious bread and getting back to the grains? Are we going to need to build more traditional mills? Or? Um, that's an interesting one. <laughs> yeah. Can you get bigger? How are you going to get you to ten percent? <laughs> I mean, that would be a lovely thought because a lot of villages were built on a watercourse, and the first building that went up would have been the mill because that was the only source of power at the time. Um, and so, if, if, if these can be brought back into into life and milling flour on a on a local basis using local grain from the local farmer and just supplying with very few food miles. I mean, that's a great, it'd make a great story and it'd yeah. be brilliant, but I don't, in reality, I don't know how, how practical that would be. Right, because in, it's happening in, 
you know, coffee roasters. So I, I interviewed a, a coffee roaster recently, Joel at Bad Hand, and we were chatting about the fact that, you know, there used to be a coffee roasters in every town uh, and your coffee would, would be roasted locally. And they might be two. And, you'd, you'd, you know, you'd either like that guy's or that guy's kind of coffee roast. And that was your choice. And then we're seeing a growth in um, in the kind of artisan gins. So Rupert yeah. from Conquer Gin, for example, doing a lot more gins. Craft Beer, Steve from Eight Arch, we interviewed. And, you know, we, we lost all of the craft breweries and they all got swallowed up by the big guys but now you know there's a lot more breweries locally is that not happening here in milling world is there is is the as the demand changed or is the demand still dropping off for your style of flour no i'd say it's increasing um and the uh, uh, not just with the baker i think with the home baker as well i think people i don't know if we can um thank the british bake-off for part of that it certainly helped it's uh, got people interested in baking at home um, and we've noticed our sales, the retail bags increased over the last few years. And so there's been quite a following on sourdoughs. People, I suppose when, when the bread machine came in, whenever it did come in in the, was it the 80s, um, it was a bit like the yogurt making. A lot, a lot of people would have one, be given one and use it initially for the first three weeks. And then it would get chucked in the back of the cupboard and so not used. Yeah. Um, but there's a percentage of people who thought, oh, yeah, this making bread's quite fun. Um, I want to take it to the next stage and um, sort of make it properly and make, make sourdoughs. And it, the bread machines whetted their appetite and they've wanted to take it further. So, I mean, OK, it's only a small percentage of the people with bread machines, but it has definitely got um, a lot more people interested in making bread that probably wouldn't have done before. Mm. And... Uh, there's huge following on sourdoughs now, and people are sort of competing with each other on a, on a on a domestic level, you know, just to try and produce the, the perfect loaf. So uh, I th- I think that's certainly helped create more interest in it and yeah. more demand, and people like then to go and buy the, the local flour, and just go to the supermarket and just get a box standard flour off the shelf, you know, which yes will make a a nice sourdough, but at the end of the day, you won't get the same depth of flavour or the same character to the loaf as you would if you're using a local flour. So when I go to the supermarket now and I might see, you know, I like nice bread and you see the, the finest or best of or whatever the premium kind of brand is, which is very much being sold around being kind of, you know, wholemeal and multi-grain and, and much more nutritious. Uh, is that rubbish? Are they, are they are they not actually using the kind of traditional flour with all the nutrition in because they simply wouldn't be able to because there's not enough supply? Um, I think the grain, the type of grain they use initially is going to have an impact on, like like anything, I suppose. Well, what you what you put in is what you get out. Um, so if you're using, for one of better word, cheap grain from a big agriculture, you're not going to get the same results as if you're ga- going to a a small organic farmer who's putting a lot of passion to what they're growing. It's on a mixed farm. Um, the yield is much less per acre. Um, so you tend to get more intensity of flavour. Um, a lot of the grain on the market, is, is the high-protein grain, is um, grown on very uh, extensive um, so it's system. So it comes in from um, Eastern Europe, from the Grain Basin, or from Canada, thousands and thousands of acres, um, only producing probably less than a ton an acre. Um, but the uh, the inputs are very low, and um, you t- tend not to get the, the flavour. It's a short growing season too, so you don't get the flavour developed through the growing season. Whereas in this country, the, the growing season tends to be uh, longer. Right. Um, and, and yes, you certainly get more flavour from locally grown grain. Okay. So would most of the flour, whether it's good flour or or, uh, or or not so good with the nutrition removed, is most of it in the UK from the UK, or is it most of it an imported product now? Oh, it's more and more from the UK. Yeah. Um, even the um, industrial mills will be using more UK grain than they, they would have done 10 years ago. Why? Um, it's... Um, the varieties have got... Um, more suitable to uh, for bread making. I, I, as our um, expectations of what a loaf should look like, because uh, if you go back a so hundred years ago, a loaf of bread would have been um, quite quite flat, heavy, and uh, <laughs> um, brick-like. But now, you know, we 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 like the if it's a sourdough, we like all the 
holy bits and the airy bits and if it's even if it's a mass-produced supermarket loaf you know people have that expectation of um, softness to the loaf and that's developed over the years of um, breeding the breeding the wheat varieties to produce what what the end consumer wants at the end of the day um, but they, they, they tend to breed them for commercial gain rather than necessarily the, the pleasure of eating it so they um, they'll they'll grow it for high yield for the farmer um, disease resistance so they don't have to use so many sprays um, they'll breed it so it has a good extraction rate so for the miller he's getting as much um, white flour out as he possibly can and they'll breed it for the um, the baker so it has good uh, water absorption so they can add as much water as they can and produce as much dough out of a, a ton of ton of flour so you've got all these pointers that all led by um, money <laughs> at the end of the day yeah. and uh, and there's people like you and I sitting here but yeah but what about the flavour <laughs> you yeah, know yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. where are we and, breeding and, it for and that nutrition. and yeah. um, that's um, probably where everything's going a bit off course at the moment and so, so we are seeing these heritage grains coming on the being um, talked about and more some, some small organic farmers are growing more interesting grains um, so to say we've done a full circle might be a bit extreme but certainly we're looking back into the past and thinking oh you know, what, what can we take from there that's going to benefit mm, okay. uh, the flavour of the bread interesting and then so not only have you got the difference in how you actually you know mill the flour and using this the the uh the stones and uh and keeping the wheat germ in but actually the grain that you buy as well you're 95 or 90 95 percent organic is that right and, and why is that important yes yeah, so when most of what we do is organic now i've still got a few customers who um choose to have the non-organic grain i mean what how we treat the grain and mill the flour is exactly the same there's no no difference at all um but it's just the way the gr the grain has been grown uh, on from the organic system. There's no artificial uh, fertilizers, insecticides, or herbicides. Um, it's, so, um, and that's the certification you get to, to to prove that sort of thing that it hasn't hasn't been tampered with it anyway. But the the, the non-organic grain we use too is we're careful about what farms we get it from, and we treat it in exactly the same way. So. As far as I'm concerned, they're very similar products. Really. Yeah. And is your motivation for organic is that to do with the the flavour of the end product, or is that to do with how we farm and how we treat the land, or is it all of the above? I think it is. It's a big picture, really. I don't. I don't think I could say it's or oh, it's just for flavour because I think you know, you could probably get that flavour too from um, a traditionally run British um, local farm, you know, who, who are milling in a traditional rotation. Um, on a mixed farm but um, no it's uh, I, th I think the, the the way we look after the land is really important and the uh, the whole ecology around it and the wildlife that uh, we need we need to support I think we've only just realized this now we we need the wildlife to support it rather than just blanket spray everything and then realize we haven't got any wildlife and yeah and is that is that something you, you've always believed has it always been organic or is that is that kind of uh, evolved over time um, it, it, I've always believed it, but it probably has um, become more ingrained, I suppose, for one better word. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, when we start, when my father started doing milling um, here after doing the animal feeds, uh, organic hadn't really been invented, and um, it's probably just the way food was. I think wasn't it? it? Well, we used to get this great. There was there used to be a local f farmer who um, was one of the founder members of the Soil Association, and and uh, he. He grew this grain that was compost grown. It was all compost grown, is what they called it. Um, and it was, it was just, it was a mixed farm and it was um, done done in the traditional way. He grew this old fashioned variety of wheat called Maris Widgeon that had long straw and the, the straw would get taken off, it would get thrashed and that would go off to the thatchers for thatching the roofs. And uh, we'd end up with this, this grain and um, what, because it was the only farm we got it from, whatever the quality it was that year. That's that's what we had, and so we had a very understanding local baker who would um, make bread out of it. Sometimes it was better than others, but uh, it wasn't for quite a few years until the organic grain became available, 
and even then it wasn't is quite often there wouldn't be enough to last the whole year you know it, it was very thin to begin with um but now we've got quite a few farms within a 30 mile radius that grow organically so we have a good uh, good selection of grains to choose from okay that's uh that's, that's a relief to hear i think isn't it that uh you know that it's changing and whether that's consumer driven because they want it or whether it's just because you know most most of the farmers i speak to genuinely love the land they want to look after the planet they they care about animal welfare and they almost seem to resent this kind of industrialization and this yield and this money kind of approach and didn't ever really want to farm that way and it's almost like you know it always felt wrong and now we can prove it's wrong we can prove the damage that it's having on the planet and they seem desperate to kind of go back to the traditional approach if they can but the thing that's holding them up is price and maybe supermarket pressure and that's going to rely on the consumer to change and maybe be be willing to 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 pay a little bit more i suppose is is that reflective of the challenge you've had is, is the reason that you can now do this that you can you can do traditional milling and you can buy organic is because people are willing to pay more for your flour yes i think that's true is um because we, we don't actually supply any supermarkets so all, all our trade is to um small independent bakers independent shops farm shops delis um and people from the door sort of thing and it was interesting the Last recession, 2008, was it the last recession when everything went um, pear-shaped for a bit? The banks um, got on the spot of bother. And uh, the uh, the supermarkets just sort of took all the organic produce off the shelf overnight. So it wasn't the consumer-led. It was the decision by the supermarkets to take it up because they wanted to fill the shelves with... Um, the, the economy range of things, I suppose, because there wasn't going to be so much money around for purchasing, so the, the, all, the, all the organic produce got taken off. And we, we didn't really notice any change in our output. Our, our demand didn't change at all, um, which which is really interesting. So it sort of made, made me think, really, that all our customers are buying our flour because it's, it's, it's a choice they've made and a decision they've made. And... Um, and, and they're quite happy staying on that course. Whereas I think with the supermarket, sometimes it can just be a trend. It can pe- people are buying a, another packet on the shelf. You know, you've got your um, your product, whether whatever it might be, so whether it be flour or rice or drinking chocolate or whatever. But you've got the same big global manufacturer making it in one packet, and then next door you've got them making it in another packet with just organic written on, and. It, it, I think it, that that follows a tr- that sort of marketing follow follows a trend. Whereas those who really believe um, in the organic and uh, will be buying locally and um, not necessarily buying from the supermarket. Okay, that makes it sound uh, you know very easy in the fact that like you just could stick to your principles, <laughs> sell organic, and you charge a higher price per principle. Presumably, you know you've been doing this a long time, so there there must have been some some key challenges and some shifts i suppose in um in trends that, that impact your business what's what's been some of the key stuff over the years oh, that wow. comes back to you yes um well, i suppose we yes we so we started doing flour in the 1970s um so was, we had two types of flour we had <laughs> wholemeal flour and um what we called an 81 percent flour so it's like a brown flour it's halfway between white and wholemeal so we just produced two types of flour um and during the seventies, the supermarkets hadn't really taken a grip on um, on that on the sort of whole food side of the market. Um, so we supplied a few bakers, but a lot of our trade was to whole food shops, um, which were all these shops sort of popped up all over the place, um, selling whole foods in open bags and you had your scoop and you weighed out what you wanted and um, it was just a really nice way of uh, doing things really um, and that that carried on into the early 80s I suppose but the supermarkets were seeing there's a huge because it was during this phase it was quite a lot of um, veg, vegetarianism and the um, the cranks the, the cranks restaurants and the, the, they were a big scene and so there was a huge um, demand for earthy foods, which wasn't being covered by the supermarkets. And the supermarkets, I think, saw this. And so then they suddenly started stocking 
all the, the whole foods, the wholemeal flours. Um, and a, a lot of these whole food shops sort of just disappeared in a very short period of time. Um, they totally got, um, competition was just overwhelming. Um, so, so we noticed a huge drop off in the um, mid to late 80s. Um, but the supermarkets are really taking the trade away. Um, it was then that I, fo- I started focusing on bakers direct and um, channeling, finding the interesting bakers and getting them to uh, um, you know, try our flour and see if they could um, sort of make more interesting products. And it, it was quite a challenging time, sort of right up until the late 90s, really, I'd say, um, when... Um, a positive side of the supermarkets came through in that they were introducing the consumer to more diverse breads. Um, and they, from all over the, the world, well, certainly Europe, if, if not the world, all these sort of continental breads would appear. Okay, they they weren't great, but <laughs> they, they, they looked... They looked interesting, and I think you know, it, before then it had just been standard British loaves, and suddenly you saw a more diverse range of breads, and I think that got people interested. So then that introduced um, some bakers to try and reproduce these breads uh, in better quality. So we found that a lot of the uh, it would be chefs who who'd be um, who'd enjoyed baking as part of as part of their career and um, really enjoyed the baking side of it and weren't getting a bit dis- disillusioned with the being in the kitchen bit. And they broke away and started their own bakeries and, um, and put loads of passion into bread making. And that sort of filtered out our way. And because they like to deal with small independent miller, they like to come and see where they're... Uh, flowers being produced and they like to build up the whole story um so that that certainly took us um late 90s um through the millennium and um and and then the side over sort of revolution for want of a better word has taken off and um and now we're finding there's a huge demand for stone ground um stone ground flowers Okay, so is the current demand coming again more from the uh, from the bakeries, or are you now back to the direct to the consumer again, or are the whole food shops coming back? Um, not really the whole food shop. So it's more the um, it's more small independent baker and the um, and the home baker. Right. So, yeah. so how do you get direct to the consumer? Do you sell direct, or do you just go through a number of resellers? Yeah, no. It's in our locality we we deliver directly to shops. Um, but we supply one or two wholesalers, but really people out, out of the area, we've got an online shop and most people will get it through that. Nice. So the internet is providing you with a new opportunity to get straight to the caring, discerning consumer then that, Absolutely. that bypasses the super Because we're seeing this huge impact on retail, I suppose, aren't we? And the, and the domination of the internet. And I think sometimes the concern is that's only going to play out for the benefits of the, the Apples and the Amazons of the world. But actually, in reality, I've spoken to a number of suppliers who say, you know what, actually, it's a good thing even for the little guy because we have now got a route to market. We can bypass the middleman. So that, that would be your experience in part then. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's not a huge part of our business. We don't really... Mm. Because it's quite time-consuming packing all the flour. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sending yeah, send half a kilo of flour, and then yeah. you get the, your bag gets lost or whatever, and all yeah. the rest of it. So um, it's not it's not something we really push, but it is um, becoming more of an important yeah. part of our business. It'd be interesting. Once there's drones and people can just press a button and say they need flour, <laughs> and, 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 and it takes the hassle out of it for you. Although that would, it would look, look like snow. There'd be a lot of white people going around if they start exploding. What's your thoughts on the uh, the kind of the allergy changes and the gluten free and all the kind of stuff that's happening around that? Yes. Is <laughs> <laughs> uh, it? Is it? Oh no! Go on. I'm just going to what's going on? Yes, again, I think there are true celiacs who who can't, um, you know, the slightest bit of gluten, and it does seriously affect them. Um, and then there are those that it's become more of a fashion trend. Um, and, so, and then there's those in between who just feel un- uncomfortable at eating um, gluten, you know, and, and it just doesn't necessarily agree with them. Um and you wonder where all this comes from, and 
whether it is it does tend to coincide with um, industrial production of bread, um, the Chorleywood bread process, which sped up when well, traditionally even yeasted bread, you know, is left for a decent amount of time, so several hours to um, in bulk fermentation. So, so all the natural enzymes in the uh, in the dough could break down the gluten. Um, well, this doesn't happen in mass-produced bread. They tend to use um, either um, artificial enzymes or chemicals of other description or huge amounts of energy uh, impacted on the dough or combinations of all three to so, um, speed up the whole process. Uh, so the gluten's still very much there. And I don't know if you've ever chewed... A, a bit of wheat. If you get a few bits of wheat and put them in your mouth and chew away and keep sucking the bran away, you're left with a little bit of um, gluten in your mouth, which is like chewing gum, and it sort of stretches and you can play about with it. And uh, uh, if you imagine that in your gut, it, it probably isn't the most digestible thing for it to be having to cope with. So, but in a dough, you've got all the enzymes helping break that down, and especially in the sourdough, even more so. Okay, so how much of that comes from how the f is it, is it how the flour is made or how the bread is made or is it both? That um, more that? how the bread is made. Right. Yes. Okay. Yes. So it's not necessarily the, you know, when you talk about the steel roll mills and the changes in the in the milling process. There. Not at all. No. I mean, right. gluten's gluten. It's it's right. there in the wheat. Um, okay. I mean, it's um, it's there in spelt. Um, some people say, oh, um, yeah, they. Uh, they avoid gluten and they eat spelt, and I have to uh, correct them saying there's, there's every bit as much as gluten in spelt as there in wheat, but it's um, it's more extensible. It's um, it's a weaker gluten, and so it stretches, so it is more digestible to the gut. So, uh, um, yeah, some people who find they can eat spelt products, whereas with wheat products they do find it difficult to digest. Okay, but the same rule applies really. Is the fact that it's, it's they can get away with making the bread in it quicker because the spelt is easier to break down the gluten. Whereas really, if we were just still making bread in the traditional way, yeah, which presumably a lot of so a lot of people you supply and the local bakers that you supply would be making the bread in the way that would break down the gluten in advance and therefore potentially wouldn't affect people in the same way as well. That's right. Yes, yeah, so, I mean if you if if you go to your independent baker, there's a good chance. It is a long fermentation process. Um, mm. Even with yeasted dough, you know, it could be at least four hours, and, uh, right. and the, uh, we get this breakdown. Yeah, I know my chefs get frustrated, and you're absolutely right. You know, there there is definitely a case for uh, for celiac, and we make a lot more um, gluten free products. And actually, a lot of the time now, you know, the bakers are learning how to make. Uh, gluten-free in a way that doesn't have an impact on uh, on on quality and taste, but I still feel that it's it's uh, you know it's an overreaction. And if we just mm. got back to the, the the whole food and back as close to the grain as possible, and and, and some of the traditional techniques, that would be for me a, a nicer solution. Definitely, yes, and certainly on the um, industrial industrially produced gluten-free products and if you read through the ingredients on them it's quite shocking and the amount of processing aids and sh sugars and fats that are required to to replicate um, what the product has if you just use natural ingredients which th these added ingredients must be far far worse for you than um, mm. it's incomprehensible I think, isn't it? the, yeah people think they're doing it for a for a health, health reason, yes. yeah, and then you go, <laughs> do you realise what's actually in what's it? In when, it? like you said, gluten is, is is completely natural and from the grain. I think the more we can get back to a to a whole food diet and a less processed diet, but I did, but I, you know, it's it's been encouraging, and it was the same when I was chatting to um, Helen from the Soil Association because part of me was was concerned that it was going to be impossible to follow a more traditional approach to to farming or or anywhere along this process of food production and to feed you know 10 billion people by by 2050 was actually uh, you know a juxtaposition it was actually impossible mm. to achieve both but she was actually very optimistic that you can 
you know, you can increase yields and you can farm traditionally and it is possible to, to, to feed the population. We just need to be, you know, a little bit more clever. And there's a lot of research now around, uh, you know, agroforestry and kind of, you know, mixing the uh, the diversity of what you grow and how you grow. Um, so it seems that, yeah, you know, we're, we're not in this position because we have to, we don't have to compromise to feed people in essence. We can still feed people really good food. We've just got to, we've got the consumer to want it and we've got the supply to be there. Would yes, that, that would would that seem fair from your experience? Yes, I think so. I mean, it is. It, it probably is all, always going to be more expensive, so it's going to be that the those with less disposable income, those who are on a tight household budget, that are less likely to be able to um, afford. Which seems a bit unfair in a lot of respects, because yeah. why should they miss out on having a healthy, nutritious diet? Um, but there's a whole Edu- educational raft of breakthrough too I think that mm. needs to come right, right well all food once upon a time would have been healthy nutritious yeah so who, who is it who made the decision that it was okay to get rid of healthy nutritious food to make it cheaper we all used to eat normal food didn't we, yeah. we, we you know but back when we were way more skint than we were now it's a very easy thing to say because obviously there's a lot of people in the economy that, that would struggle but it, yeah it's where it's, it's a bit of a chicken and egg kind of situation is where did the problem come from yeah. it feels like we should be able to feed the population nutritious food without uh you know yeah bankrupting people i suppose we've devalued food haven't mm-hmm. we i mean yes it wasn't that long ago when we were spending sort of 20 30 40 percent of the, our income on food and now is it down to about six percent now or something it's 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 really it has been really devalued and it's um yeah more important to have the the car and the conservatory and the computers and how did nutrition how did what we put in our bodies become you know, so much further down the list, it seems, list, yeah. it seems insane. You know, I've, I've said this before, but I get asked more questions around nutrition when I take my dog to the vet about, is yeah. the dog's diet changed? What's yeah. he eating? What's he doing? Than I do when I go to the doctors myself. I don't think I've ever been asked, you know, have you changed your diet? Have you, have you changed what you eat? You know, what are you actually, you know, what are you putting in your body? And it seems, uh, yeah, it seems odd that nutrition just doesn't seem to be part of what we're, I suppose it comes down to education, I guess, you know, we're not, we're not taught about it at no. enough age to understand it. And if, if we ate, we, if we improved our diets and were more healthy, that would save the NHS. Thing. It's a, it's a yeah, whole cycle, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, and, and it would away. help the planet be better because we'd be, you know, yeah, we'd be growing food in a way that was that, that was that was better. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a no-brainer, but it's just it's breaking, the, breaking yeah. the cycle. But I hope it's changing. So I was, um, I, yeah, I'm not not pessimistic about it. Just concerned about it. That's part of the reason for launching this podcast was at least have the conversations. I don't think. You know, people aren't consciously uh, making the wrong decisions. I think, you know, it's e- it's either subconsciously or, or because we're simply not aware, basically. So the more we have the conversation, the more we talk about it. And I do think of the, the way that information is now transmitted is is no longer just sort of top top down from the government. But there's a lot of conversations. There's a lot of documentaries through social media, through, you know, direct being able to sell directly to the consumer, you being able to get your message out now, bypassing the supermarket. So yeah. I do think there's, um, you know, there's a genuinely good and interesting opportunity at the moment but it's not uh, it's not going to be instantaneous no no I think that's correct yeah in the process of doing this, does it does it feel uh, overwhelming? Kind of, you know, running running this business in this kind of niche is this something you, you genuinely have a passion for and you genuinely love, or do you look out and see the changes and the and the new milling techniques and what the supermarkets doing and kind of you know lose faith, or actually does it just kind of motivate you more to, to get up every day and fight that battle? Yeah, no, I really enjoy what I'm doing, and um, yes, there's, there's always challenges every day, and I think uh, yes, I'm not. Um, <laughs> I'm not tempted to, to 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 go to the other side. No, I'm quite quite happy milling in the traditional way. But there are lo- loads of improvements. You know, I'd like to to do. I I can see. You know, we we can do here. So it's it's, it's a constant challenge trying to um, yeah, do the best here. Really. Yeah. So it, it, going back a little bit to that um, idea that you know m- maybe there is going to be an increase in demand, and actually it's quite hard to supply it because there's f- so few. Uh, 
mills if people want to get into into milling is this is this you kind of think of barriers to entry i suppose in the fact that most mills you see are very traditional have been there for hundreds of years if somebody just goes you know what i want to i want to do that is it is it possible can you set up these kind of new mills what advice would you give to a wannabe kind of person who goes yeah i want to i want to do milling is it is it how's this kind of career you know your kind of traditional approach how's that going to continue for the next five generations Mm -hmm. and is it yeah, so if you want to be a watermiller or a windmiller, you are restricted to finding a watermiller or a windmill, right. yeah. um, which are sort of few and far between. But there are ones dotted around the country, and you know it's important to breathe life into them, to preserve them, to give them reason to carry on working. So uh, you know, that, that's a good reason in itself to keep them working. Um, I mean, there are. We supply one or two bakers that actually mill some of their own flour. They've installed uh, milling equipment into their bakery. Um, so it gets very um, quite low output, but it's just enough for them to produce you know, what they want to produce. Um, okay, so, that's so it is possible then to just mill on a on a on a smaller level. Again, getting back to that, like you say, there would have been once upon a time there'd have been mill in every village. Yeah. So we're not going to go back to that, but people can do this on a smaller was, scale. Yeah, I mean there are farms. The um, some farms have installed their own milling equipment, so they're adding value onto their own crops. Okay. Um, you know, milling their own crops. But do they do they tend to instill the very modern approach to milling or the more traditional in, uh, in your experience? It tends to be stones. Yeah. Yes, okay. yes. That's good. Yes. It just feels a shame to lose this um, you know, this kind of heritage and this ability to get that that genuinely nutritious kind of product. It would be a shame to lose that in only a few generations. I don't know, like so going back to the craft brewery kind of analogy, but you know, there were there were literally thousands. Yeah. And that presumably that would have been the same with mills. There would have been thousands and now it sounded like there were maybe thirty. That's uh, yeah. that's a bit yeah. Yeah. And I suppose it's the same with the uh, and, and the traditional baker, isn't it? You know, yeah, the bakers dotted around yeah. and um but but I think there are more there are more uh, Baker's beginning to appear, so that's very encouraging. Okay, so you're optimistic. So what's next for Stokes then? Have you got any uh, any plans? Just do what we do better, I think. Yes, yeah. no, build up relationship with our farms, and it's nice having the relationship we do have with our farmers. We we buy the grain from, so work on that, and also relationship with the bakers too. It's um, it's nice having the whole having the whole cycle really, just seeing the grain grow, growing in the fields, coming in, and then. When you deliver around to the bakers, you see them pulling the loaves of bread out of the um, out of the oven. So uh, that I do find really satisfying. Yeah, it's uh, it's great, isn't it? Yeah, I, so, I, I love it. Um, so if people uh, want to find out more and they want to buy your uh, your products, where's the best place for them to go? Um, I suppose, like a lot of things these days, first port of call is the website. Yeah. So statesflower.co.uk, um, and that to uh, be able to find a list of stockists. Um, all about what we do um, and some of the bakers we supply. Perfect. You on social media as well? Or? We're not actually, no. no. <laughs> Brilliant. Good. Thank you for being one of the few left that's not. I love coming out to the, uh, we to don't the British supply supermarkets. Yeah, so you don't. don't. Uh, yeah, you don't, and uh, and you're not on social media, which is a good thing because I think yeah, that's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's all about um, genuine authenticity and uh, and getting back to traditional ways. I think, isn't it, and not getting lost in all of that. It'd drive you bonkers all the celiacs on Instagram. You'd be, <laughs> pulling, you'd be pulling your hair out. You're much better off. I say, yeah. Well, you know, thank you for doing. What you do thanks for keeping the, the traditional mills alive and for such a great product i know my bakers have used it for, for a number of years and i said i'll go back and, and and check if we still are but it's uh it's a great product it's a great story um so yeah thanks for doing it in the first instance and thanks for sparing the time to chat about it it's fascinating but uh yeah, pleasure <laughs> thank you so much cheers So there you have it. You have reached the end of another episode of the Humans of Hospitality podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please go and visit our website, humansofhospitality.co.uk for the show notes and extra episodes and information. And whilst you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter and to receive free materials all about the humans behind our incredible industry. Lastly, if you could subscribe, rate and review this podcast, you will be massively helping me out and it would be hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. We'll be launching another podcast in just seven days time. Cheers. Cheers.